So once you grab your Bibles, we're going to turn to the book of Jonah and finish off our series. I've resisted the temptation to preach on Pentecost. I do love preaching on that uh, wonderful reality of the birth of the church. In fact, this morning we were awoken at our house. I'm not sure how it was in town, but up where we live on an exposed side of a hill there, we were awoken by the sound of wouldn't say quite a mighty rushing wind, but it was a freezing cold Canberra winter wind, there's no doubt about it. Canberra is, Canberra's winter is here, ready or not, but I was certainly reflecting upon that moment that is the birth of the church, a moment that came not from the wise planning of people getting together to strategize, there's nothing wrong with that. It wasn't because of their prominence, their positions. It was the birth of the church that came about due to the power of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus said, he said, wait, do not go anywhere, but wait for the infilling, the power and the presence of the living God that will give them all they need, equip them to accomplish that which he called them to do, to proclaim the great message of the kingdom. I can see we're excited and enthused about that. But it's it's interesting, isn't it? There is this heart and there's this nature of the kingdom and so often we're drawn in the world around us. Everything's a push towards self-sufficiency. It's a push to to be more reliant and dependent upon ourselves and yet we celebrate this kingdom that's an upside-down kingdom that Paul in 2 Corinthians, he proclaims, he says, I boast, not just put up with, I boast in my weaknesses Because it's in my weaknesses that he is made strong. The journey of the kingdom is a journey not into self-sufficiency. It's a journey into dependence. We're as dependent today, some 2,000 years later, as those 120 in the upper room. What is it we need today to accomplish that which God has called us? It's not more wisdom alone, it's not better preaching alone, it's not more anointed worship, I pray for all those things and many more, but there's one thing above all else that we need, and it's His power and presence in the midst and at work in the hearts and lives of His people. Can you say amen? Amen. So let's pray into that, let's pray for our time this morning. Father, we just thank you for this Pentecost Sunday. A time where we remember and mark in the church calendar what you did so many years ago. But we remember it not just as a a relic that we celebrate in the distant past, but as a reality that we need today. Come Holy Spirit again. Stir up a fresh fire of passionate love for you. Come equip us. Come fill us and send us forth to proclaim the greatness of who you are. We need you, Holy Spirit. We need you today. We'll need you tomorrow. We'll need your power and presence every moment of every day until you call us home or return to take us with you to glory. So, Father, come even in this time as we share and gather around your scriptures. May your word go forth with power. May it accomplish all that you desire for the glory of your name King Jesus, how we need you, how we love you, 
how we pray that you would open our eyes and the eyes of our heart to see you more clearly, to love you more deeply this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's turn to the book of Jonah. We've been journeying our way through this little book, which is one of the most interesting, but I think in many ways, one of the most challenging accounts that you'll come across in all of scriptures, not just the Old Testament. And we've seen these mega themes as we've gone through, a, not just a prodigal prophet, not just a whale, so often is illustrated the story of Jonah, it does involve a whale, but really it is a story that's centered around the purposes and the sovereignty of God. A God who sees all that's happening around, not just in the lives of his own people, but in the lives of the great, one of the greatest, but also one of the most wicked cities that existed at that time. And he calls Jonah to go and bring his word and his message to them. He's a God who is willing and is able to move, not just in the world, but equally, as we've learned, in the lives and hearts of his people. And in fact, that's where we end up in Jonah chapter 4. We've seen this account. The word of God comes. He calls Jonah. Jonah runs. Jonah is recommissioned. He proclaims and preaches this message that God gave him with great impact, with incredible impact. It says the whole city turns back to God. And in fact, that would be in many ways a wonderful place to end the story. And yet it continues. We'd expect to see Jonah celebrating. We'd expect to see him returning to his homeland with great joy, with this testimony of the incredible work. Hey, guys. I've got a story to tell you. You're not going to believe what happened. But instead, we find him in a very different place. So let's read this account and see how the story ends and what it is that we can learn from this concluding passage. Jonah 4, chapter 1. says this, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What is displeasing him? He's seen the mercy of God extended to this great but wicked city. They had repented. They'd heard the word of the Lord. And so God had relented from the disaster that he said he would do. And this displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. He's not just a little bit angry. We'll, re we'll read on. And it literally, it, it says that he was burning with anger. He's not just a little bit mad. He is consumed with rage. And catch his prayer. Jonah 4 verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made it. It's the whole reason I ran away to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore, I mean, that sounds like a pretty good accurate description of God. But he's not celebrating that aspect of God. He says, therefore now, O Lord, verse 3, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And I, I love the humor that we find in Scripture. I love the heart of God that it reveals to us. So what does the Lord say? Verse 4, it says, the Lord says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Hey, Jonah, how's that going for you? Is it working out? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. 
Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to, sh- to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. So that with it, God had shaded him just long enough for him to enjoy and to feel entitled. This was good. I rather like this. I think maybe I deserve a bit more of this shade. Thank you, Lord. But when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, and notice this, it's the same question again. Do you be well or do well to be angry for the plant? How's this going for you? We're seeing a repeating pattern that's resurfacing in your life, Jonah. And he said, grab this, yes, I do well to be angry and angry enough to die. I mean, he's not really progressing much in his anger, is he? The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Now, no need to turn the page or look ahead because there is no more. We've ended this entire account with somewhat of an open-ended finish. Now, that's intentional, I believe. This is one of those... Choose your own adventure books as you get to the end. Where, where will you go from here, Jonah? And not just Jonah. Where will we go as we read and ponder the message that's in this book and revealed herein? What is the next step? Does he burn in his anger? Is he completely consumed by it? Does he turn and repent fully? We've seen at least a partial repentance as he reaches out and God rescues and redeems him. Does he turn again? And it's interesting, there's plenty of opinions on either side of the camp. If you want the Disney finish, the happy ending, there are many who say, well, the only way really that we could know this account and realize what it was that that Jonah struggled with as he was there in the depths, as he's in the belly of the whale, as if this story was actually told by Jonah himself, that perhaps this was the moment that he came back to the Lord surrendered his life afresh and told this as a a wonderful journey of his account with the Lord. There's plenty of others who disagree with that view and say, well, no, this is told as a warning. And who knows where Jonah ended up. So you can pick your finish. But that's the whole purpose as we read Scripture is not just to read as a story that we're removed from, but to examine our own hearts and lives in light of Scripture. What is it saying to us? And how is it that we need to respond? So I want to give us three thoughts from this particular passage, but also wrapping up some of these themes, things that I hope have stirred in our hearts, whether you've joined us for the whole sermon series or just parts of it. Things for us to weigh up. See, I I believe this book is so pertinent for us in all generations, but particularly in the circumstances and seasons that we find ourselves in. It's a a recalibrating moment. It's God challenging not only Jonah, but his people at the time and his people as we sit here 
this morning. And there's many, many things, but let me pick out three. Number one, if you're taking notes, it's simply this. This final chapter, and indeed this whole account, it teaches us this, that God's mercy is wider, that his love is deeper, and that his grace is greater than all of our sins and mistakes. There is this clear theme all the way through, and I love this final scene. Here is Jonah. Anyone who read this account would expect him to be celebrating, but he's not. He is angry. He is furious at God. This is all your fault. I knew this was going to happen. And not only is he angry, but here's the scene. He's so consumed by his anger, it says he leaves the city and he sets up camp. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to deal with my anger. I'm going to set up camp and just really wallow in it. I'm going to sit here and hope that something miserable still happens. There's still time. There's still time for some fire and brimstone and for things to turn out the way that I think perhaps this whole account should have gone. He sets up camp. And I I won't ask for a show of hands for how many of us, when we're feeling stirred up emotions, that our first response is, you know what, I'm just going to stay here for a while. I might just wallow a little in the muck and the mire. I'll just set up camp and just hang on to that which is consuming me. I think if we're honest, we all fall into that camp a bit. And yet, despite Jonah's rebellion from the beginning, despite his bad attitude, despite his blame and even anger towards the Lord, where do we find God in this final picture? We find him coming alongside Jonah. Almost imagine him there, Jonah's furious. This is not in Scripture. This is just the way I picture this scene playing out. He's sitting there. He's set up his little camp. He's burning with rage. And the Lord just coming alongside, pulling up a little deck chair. Hey, Jonah, let's have a little chat, eh? (laughs) The point is this. He comes to meet him where he is at. I mean, come on, if that was us, surely by this stage we'd be a little bit frustrated. Jonah, man, you have messed this up so bad. You're still nowhere near where I need you to be. Let me go and find someone else who actually has some perspective. I mean, if other people had seen half of what you'd seen, they'd have a far better attitude. But that's not the heart of God, is it? He's a God who comes down. In his rebellion, what does he do? He comes and finds Jonah. I mean, sometimes it's in a storm, sometimes it's in... A gentle whisper. But he meets Jonah where he's at. And in fact, this is a picture of this entire account and the entire workings of God through Scripture. He is the God who speaks. He's the God who sends. He's the God who corrects. He's the God who rescues. He reached down and he pulls us out, even from the depths of the ocean, the depths of our own sinful mistakes. He pursues us to the ends of the earth. He is at work. It doesn't matter the depths of our depravity, the depths of the oceans of our own mistake. Jonah is burning in anger against God, and yet God in his mercy, he's still coming alongside him. Hey, Jonah, let's, let's talk. Let's have a chat. Let's work this through together. What a picture of God, a God whose mercy is wider, 
whose love is deeper and a grace that is greater than all of our sins. You see, I think so often in life, the other end of the spectrum, I think we, we struggle at times. Maybe it's in our own lives. Maybe it's in as we look at the lives of others and we think, well, how can God ever possibly use me? Maybe we've made a mistake in the past. We completely messed things up. We went the wrong way. We, we felt perhaps God was leading us in a direction and we took a completely different turn. I won't ask for a show of hands if there's anyone here in that boat. Here's the wonderful encouragement from the book of Jonah. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter where you are now. You might feel like you're at the bottom of the ocean. All it takes is for us to look to him. Even as Jonah did, he, he turns to God. I mean, it's not much of a prayer, is it? But he still does. He's burning with anger and he turns to God. God in his graciousness, he's still there to meet with us. He's still there to love us. He's still there to pull us out of the depths. So be encouraged as you look at your own life, as you look at the world around us. It's the other mega theme of this book. God is not removed. He is accomplishing his purposes. He is. And he wants to use disobedient, judgmental, broken people like you and like me and like this little guy called Jonah. I love that about this book. God's mercy is wider, his love is deeper, and his grace is greater than all Jonah's mistakes, all your mistakes, and all my mistakes, if we just look to him. Number two is this. We see this lesson here that is so important for us to learn, and I'll phrase it a few different ways. Here's the first one. The lesson is about judging rightly and a righteous judge. We could put it this way. It's about letting God be God and recognizing that we are not. You see, what's interesting to me and strikes me as I read through this account is that Jonah's there and his complaint against the Lord. He says, God's... The reason I ran is, is this is what I knew about you, that you're gracious, that you're merciful, that you're slow to anger, that you're abounding in steadfast love, that you relent from disaster. Now, all of us would look at that, I hope, and say, you know what? It's interesting that he had good theology. See, this is not a theological issue. He, he knew his theology. He knew who God was, and he expounds upon it. He calls himself as he gets caught up in the boat in the storm. He says, I'm a prophet of the one true God, the God who made heavens. There's nothing in this book, as, as some people like to say, well, he, he clearly had some issues in his theology. I don't think he did. I don't see anything here in Scripture that indicates in any way that he had issues with his theology. So the issue wasn't bad theology. It was a bad heart. And that's what God tries to get the bottom of. As he's there burning in his anger, God comes alongside him. The ESV translate, translates it this way. It says, do you do well to be angry? The original language actually says this. Is it good? Is it good? 
that you were angry? Are you calling this anger good? Is it good? And see, really that goes to the heart of what Jonah had struggled with from the beginning to the end. His definition of what he would call good versus God's definition of what God would call good. In fact, we see this, don't we, from the very beginning, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God creates imperfection and he says, it is, it is good. He declares that it is good and this is good. He makes this, he says, it is good. He makes the woman, he says, it's very good. This is good. He is the God who declares what is good. And yet, in the midst of that scenario of perfection, of all that was good that Adam and Eve had to enjoy, they still desired to decide for themselves. There was one thing, wasn't there? He said, it is not good to eat the fruit, the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And something rose up in their hearts and they said, well, we will decide for ourselves that which is good. You see, we could put it this way. Jonah was happy with God as the one true God. He was happy as the God who was merciful. Great theology, great explanations around God's mercy, his kindness. However, he had one sticking point. And that was with God's definition of what was good. We could say the same, and let's put this in perhaps our, our modern vernacular. So often we have no problem with Christ as our saviour, as our healer, as our teacher, as our comforter, as our strength. What we struggle most with at times is Jesus as our judge. We want to decide for ourselves that which is good. What is the greatest Struggle. The greatest struggle, I believe, could easily be argued, is for a throne. Not for the throne of heaven, that's well and truly settled, but for the throne of the human heart. It's an issue of lordship. And you see, this is the greatest tragedy in this book, but it's the greatest tragedy that we see around us in our modern society is this lie, this myth, this Trojan horse that we should decide for ourselves that which is good. If we can just determine for ourselves what is good, if I can determine for me, then somehow that is the path to freedom and fulfillment. And as I've said often and will continue to because it's such a strong push, this emphasis on human autonomy or our self-individual individualistic right to determine for ourselves, it narrows the concept of freedom, purpose, and meaning to something which is purely in here, and in turn it enslaves us to ourselves. It is a surefire path to frustration, misery, and bondage, a prison all of our own making. See, God comes here to Jonah. He says, let me let me just set you free. Let me show you. Is, is it good that you're angry? How's it going? And Jonah's very honest, isn't he? He says, well, actually, I'm so miserable, I want to die. It's not going so well. How's it going determining for yourself what is good? Is, is it working out? He asks him twice. 
In fact, there's this whole scenario, isn't there, with he's there, he's set up camp, there's a scorching wind, and the Lord brings up a tree to shade him. And then the next day, as he's feeling entitled to this shade, he's exceedingly glad, and he's exceedingly angry again. God asks him the same question. Is it good? How's, how's that definition of... You, know, you, you realize your definition of good here is purely about the momentary pleasure that you're experiencing rather than any other notion of goodness. See, this mistake that Jonah has fallen into, that the Lord is addressing in his life, is the one certain path to frustration, misery, and bondage. The great bastion of liberty as it's held up of self-autonomy is nothing more than an illusion. And we see it all around us. And before we say, okay, well, it's, it's just out there and it's not in here. You know, the interesting thing for Jonah, and the interesting thing for the people of God at that particular time, if you read the account, and we delved a little bit into the history of what was happening in the great prosperity of the nation of Israel, and yet also the great secularization, we could call it, of society. See, it wasn't so much that they were turning away from Yahweh. There's not one moment here that Jonah says, you know what, I've decided not to follow God. I've actually decided I'm going to worship another God. See, it wasn't that that was the issue and at the heart of Jonah's rebellion. The heart of Jonah's rebellion was simply this. He, he acknowledged, he said, God is God, God is good. But I want God and. I want God and the ability to determine for myself what is good for me. I, I want God and. And I think that is the trap that continually we see throughout the Old Testament and continually we need to guard our hearts from. I, I want God and just a bit of consumerism, just a bit of comfort. I want God and I want to hang on to this addiction and this bondage and you know, God really wants me to be happy and therefore I should decide for myself. There's no liberty, there's no joy. Even though the world will tell you that's what's on offer, I guarantee you it's bondage, it's misery, it's frustration, and it's this consuming anger that he ends up in, God, just kill me. Just, just, get, just smite me off the face of the earth. I'd rather die than live in this place. And yet I believe God reaches in there and gives him an opportunity. He says, well, there is another way. How about you just let me determine for you what is good? And that's what I pray and believe and hope Jonah eventually realized and ended up See, he is Lord of all, as the saying goes, or nothing at all. So we see that's number two. It's about judging rightly and the righteous judge. It's about letting God be God and recognizing that we are not. And number three, something that I believe is so clearly all the way through this particular account is this radical mercy, this radical grace and love that moves us from consumption to contending. From consumption to contending. Let's, let's look at that in two accounts. First of all, we see this as Jonah in chapter 1, he's in the ship. 
He's run away. He's so exhausted in his fleeing, not only from the Word of God, but the presence of God. He's hiding himself in the bow of the ship. Of course, the storm comes and the sailors that are all around are concerned. They're doing everything that they can. They're crying out to their gods. They're calling upon everything they can possibly do. They're throwing cargo off the ship and they find Jonah asleep. And it says the captain, he, he rouses Jonah. He says, Jonah, wake up. What are you doing? Don't you care about what's going to... We're all going to die. This is not just about you anymore. We're all stuck in this boat together. It's fascinating to me that as you read through this account, it always seems like it's the Gentiles that act more righteously than Jonah. It's an aside. It's an interesting note. Go through and you can view the story through that lens and see what it reveals. The second place we see this, moving from consumption to contending, is the very last question that we see here. As the Lord challenges Jonah, he says, Jonah, you've been enjoying the shade. You care so much about this little plant that was there one day and it was gone the next. And the pleasure, the momentary fleeting pleasure that that gave you, and yet... There's no love, there's, there's, no, there's nothing in your heart, no feeling of compassion towards this great city of 120,000 people. And he challenges Jonah, doesn't he? He says, should I not pity Nineveh? Jonah, really the question here that I want to ask you is not why should I care for these people, it's what's happened in your heart that you have so lost any love, compassion, or feeling towards anyone or anything other than that, what gi- that that gives you temporary pleasure. See, the point is this, God's blessings were never a call to consumerism. <clears throat> we talk about Pentecost, don't we? We've, we've celebrated it this morning as the Holy Spirit was poured out, as God said, you're going to fulfill the Great Commission. Here's the Spirit poured out. There's Uh, mighty rushing wind, there's tongues of fire, there's proclamation of the great glories and mysteries of God, and you know, all of this happening. What was the point of it? Well, remember, Jesus never said, well, just wait and that'll come upon you and then you'll be able to have some nice meetings. You'll be able to form a holy huddle. It'll be wonderful. You'll be able to come together. There'll be warm fuzzies. You'll be able to just hang out and separate yourself from everybody else and just become little spiritual consumers. That was never the heart, was it? He said, this this is happening, this is going to happen so that you can be equipped and filled and empowered and qualified to go. To go, to accomplish a mission that is far beyond yourself. You know, I think the saddest irony in this book, and as we look through church history indeed, but let's focus on Jonah for a moment, is that here is Jonah, and he, he has accomplished something, well, the Lord has accomplished something through him that very few, if any, prophets or people in all of scriptures could boast. He has seen the greatest nation and empire at that time turn suddenly 
and significantly and supernaturally back to God. I mean, he's, he's the sort of guy that would return as a hero, that they'd write books and make movies about. He, he's the guy. Through his preaching, an entire city was saved. Like this was something incredible. The greatest revival and work of God in the Old Testament, and he missed it. And he missed it. A whole nation turning to God and he's missed it because all he can think about in his little booth there, burning with his ferocious anger, all he can think about is his own desires, his need to be right, and how that hasn't been met. See, if that's not a warning, then I don't know what it is. God has not set up a kingdom for consumers. It's not a fast food service kingdom. I want to say this in love, but let me put it outside here. I was was talking to a, a friend probably a couple of weeks ago. And this is interesting because it's become a very common conversation. I don't want this to come across critical. It's just an observation. But in this particular conversation, I was chatting to this guy, and he's a believer. I knew that he went to a particular church. And I was like, oh, you know, how are you going? Are you connected and committed back into church? And he said to me, this is not an exaggeration for the sake of an illustration. He said, oh, well, you know, it's actually fantastic, but I've, I've discovered there's one church that I really like the worship. So I can pop along there for the worship. There's another that I like, the preaching. He said, I'm actually going to two home groups at the moment. I found this one church that has a home group over here that's got a lot of guys around me. I found another home group over here that's got a different... Like, there was, there was literally four or five different connection points he had. Now, as I said, I don't, I don't want this to sound critical. Um, and I don't, I don't have anything against being a part of what God's doing in different places. We love to support other, other works and have them come through. We've had various people this year that can come and equip and encourage us. But the, the thing that was exhibited in that conversation, which is increasingly becoming the case, was this consumeristic mentality that somehow the kingdom and the purposes of the church was purely set up. He didn't say this in his own words, and this is perhaps my extrapolation of that conversation, conversation, but something we need to guard ourselves on, that the entire mission of the church, it's like a, a fast food service. It's like a meal planning for the week. Okay, what do I need this week? I need X, Y, Z. I'll have McDonald's as we all do. No, we won't. <laughs> Whatever it is, we pick and choose. And so tragically, we get caught up as Jonah did in this place of insular consumerism rather than radical contending. The greatest work, arguably in the Old Testament, certainly in our context, the greatest work that will ever outplay in human history is happening all around us. It is. We're caught up into this incredible story as the gospel is proclaimed. We're entering into, I believe, one of the most exciting periods in human history as we prepare and look expectantly for the return of Christ. And yes, things will get darker. Things will become harder. But we are called to lift up our eyes and be a part of something so much greater than ourselves. We're called to move from this mentality of consumption 
It's, it's in there. It's, it's like, Jonah, really, is that all you want to do? I mean, look at where your consumption's got you. It got you stuck in a boat in a storm. It got you stuck on the, the bottom of the ocean floor. Now it's got you stuck in a booth. God is moving. He's doing radical things that an entire generation would long to look in on. And you're stuck there consumed by your anger because you've been caught up in some sort of misappropriated mental position that this is all supposed to be about fulfilling my desires. I believe God wants to move us from that place and that mentality of consumption to contending, lifting up our eyes, being a part of what God is doing now all around us. Can we get Brendan and Beth or whoever to come up? So I want to just... Wrap it up this way, you know, the, the story leaves us with an open invitation. And I love that because there's not a foregone conclusion. There's not one reality for us to grasp. There's, there's many as we finish this account of Jonah. And specifically this morning, there's three areas that I'd love to pray for us in. If there's other things, that's fine as well. But as we've gone through this journey, these are the things impressed upon my heart that I believe God wants to do. And number one is this. Maybe this is for some of us. Maybe it's for all of us. He wants to move us from a place of discouragement to encouragement. He wants to take us from that place of, well, it's hopeless. What's the point in even trying? Things are not going well. To a place where we're encouraged to recognize that God is on the move. He wants to move us from a place, if there's any of us here who, who are discouraged because of where our life has ended up, as Catherine was talking about earlier in the service, there's promises perhaps that haven't been fulfilled where there's so many things that we hope God would do and He hasn't done or is yet to do. And that He'd move us to this place of encouragement that if God can use Jonah and if God can reach out and recalibrate the path of Jonah to accomplish his purposes through all his disobedience, through all his rebellion, through all his mistakes, then he can do that with you and I. From discouragement to encouragement. That he wants to move us, there's a second one, from this place of ruling on the thrones of our own hearts, of still hanging on to control, of perhaps having wonderful theology in so many areas, but there's just, there's just that one thing. It's that one thing that we want to hang on to. And this morning's an opportunity for the Lord to come and say, hey, is that, is that good? Is that really good? Do you really want to hang on to that, whatever it is? Or would you like to come and lay it before me and let me set you free? And the third one is that I believe for some of us, certainly the Lord's been stirring my own heart in this regard, is moving from a place of consumption to contending. Where my only thoughts and cares and desires are moved from just the temporary shade, from the fleeting pleasures to contending, God, what are you doing? What, what are you up to? I, I want to care 
for the neighbours around me, for the, the city, for people that don't know their right from their left. I want to be a part of your mission. Well, not where can you feed me, but where can you send me? Where can you use me? Use me for your glory. Send me where you'd have me go. So let's pray. So come Holy Spirit, as we invite you to do, not with any sense of ritual, as much as there is just a recognition of our need for you. Your word says it's your spirit that convicts, that challenges. It's your spirit that guides and leads. It's your spirit that helps and strengthens, literally comes alongside us where we need it. And so we acknowledge our need of your grace this morning. And I pray particularly into those three areas. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning and for whatever reason or tuning in online, they're in a place of discouragement. Whether it's the the stuff that's happening around them, a, a sense of pervading hopelessness, whether it's the story of their own life that's led them into that place of utter discouragement. Maybe I've missed it. Maybe God's moved on. There's nothing left for me to do. But I pray that there'd be a grace to just turn to you this morning for you to reach down, rescue them, pull them out, stir them up, Encourage their hearts, infuse them with hope, and propel them forward into your purpose in this critical hour. Lord, I pray that for any of us who are struggling in this area of lordship, not not so much that we're worshipping other gods or leaving the faith, but where there's just issues. It might be one thing that we're hanging on to. Lord, I pray in your mercy that you'd come alongside us. Let's really pull up the deck chair. That you'd ask the questions that we need to hear. Hey, is this really really serving you well? Hanging on to this. Hanging on to this anger. Hanging on to this bitterness. Hanging on to this thing that has wronged you. That you believe this is good. How's that working out for you? And I pray, Lord, that you would come in your mercy and set us free. And lastly, Lord, I just pray for those of us who, in an era where where churches look different, where there has been that tendency just to log on and connect online and not really engaging, where we've slipped in any way into a place of consuming, where we've misinterpreted this notion of your body and of your kingdom. As a fast food restaurant, just to come in and pick whatever suits our desires and delights in a moment. And I pray that you take us to a place where our only desire and delight is you. Is to see you glorified. Is to see your name made great. Is to see you do what only you can do to reach out and rescue, to seek and save the lost. Can a nation be saved? Yes. Your word proclaims that nothing is too hard for you. Move us from a place of just being consumers to be contenders where there's a a burden of intercession to pray and to seek and to long for breakthrough, to see your kingdom come and your will be done 
Stir it up in our hearts, God, this morning, a fresh passion and a fresh fire for you. In Jesus' name.